You're listening to the preaching ministry of Redemption Bible Church in New Braunfels, Texas, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you seek to worship Christ, walk with Christ, and work for Christ, all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, please visit redemption.bible. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming worship services. Once you have your Bibles, turn in your copy of God's Word to John 13, 31. John 13, 31 through 38 is where we'll focus our attention this morning. and picking up right where we left off in John's Gospel as we've been working our way sequentially uh, through this book now for uh, numerous uh, months. John, you'll find it there in your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And particularly now we're in the upper room. The upper room discourse where Jesus has been preparing his disciples for his departure. And as we've seen in in the last few weeks, Jesus has already prepared them to expect a life of of service, of humble service amongst the people of God in the world. And then he taught them also how to love people who hurt us. And it's to this topic of love now that Jesus elaborates on more fully. See, love is one of those like hot topic buzzwords, isn't it? Things that we see all the time on t-shirts and in other advertising, it is used often, defended fiercely, but also defined loosely. And even a few weeks ago, as we were in 1 Thessalonians 4, I showed you just the four uses of, uh, of love in the ancient Greek language in which the Bible uh, was written in and how they had different concepts for the same word that we know as love. And even in our own day, right now, we have a, a variety of definitions and expressions of love that As God's people, it warrants our continuous study of the scripture and it warrants our deep thought so that we know what this is and what to expect as Jesus commands us to love one another. And so with all of that, let's just get to the text here and then we'll study it more deeply as we go. Hopefully you found it in your Bible, John 13, 31 to 38. It says this, follow along as I read it here. So speaking of Judas, when it says, when he had gone out, that's Judas, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is God's word for God's people. 
an interesting text with some uh, confusing verses maybe, and then and kind of an abrupt ending in this whole scene here. But as we put it together, redemption, what uh, would you say we can expect of a life now of following Jesus? Remember, in the upper room, Jesus is preparing. He is equipping his disciples for his departure of what they can expect of a life now of following him. And so how would you say or how would you make the connection for uh, what the central expectation is? Well, here's what I came up with. You can write it down. It's on the screen that we're to expect a life of sacrificial love. Write that down in your notes here, I think, is the central expectation that Jesus is communicating to us, to his disciples in that day, connecting all the pieces here, is that we should expect in following Jesus a life of sacrificial love. And so let me just kind of summarize the scene here to help it uh, make more sense. Remember I just said Judas, the scene is being set, Judas had just been called out, and then he had gone out from the upper room. And after his departure, now Jesus begins to say some things that uh, create maybe some angst or some uh, confusion even in the, in the disciples. He essentially says to them, I'm about to be glorified and you can't come with me, but you must stay for now and love one another like I have been loving you so that others will also follow and love me too. To which the, it kind of reaches this boiling point and Peter just is like, no, no, like, Jesus, why can't I come with you? I will heroically die on your behalf. I will stand in your place to which Jesus, in the end, seemingly abrupt, just says, actually, no, you won't. You're going to betray me too. And at the center of this all is Jesus' commandment to love one another. Said three times so we don't overlook it. Right? In a variety of ways, it's like a, a repetition here so that we don't uh, forget it, that we can't miss it in the reading of this text here. It's a straightforward command all, all over our New Testament. And it's likely even for you, if you've been around the church, if you've been around Christians for a while, probably not new information to you, nor an unexpected mandate of following Jesus and the life of following him. And yet what I, I submit to you is that when we understand more fully what Jesus Jesus is teaching here, it takes our love to a whole nother level. And he uses these like paradoxes within the text to help us see that is, is profound, just like how things change that, well, Jesus is, is, is present in his power, but he's actually absent in his body. That we, we gain and love and, and witness towards others when we actually give away and sacrifice. And that we actually grow when we're faced with our failures with our limitations, and all of this happens by his death, through the power of Jesus' death. And so as we come to expect this, now Jesus even teaches us here, well, how then do we love sacrificially? Well, it only is possible through the power of Jesus' death. Through the power of Jesus' death, he opens, Jesus says, after Judas leaves now, he's been called out and left, he opens with maybe what is is like some confusing uh, verses here. 31, 32 here, he's telling them of his imminent death, 
and his departure, right? After foot washing, after dismissing Judas, now he comes to this and he's just like, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. And, it's, and, and in some ways, it maybe even seems like this, this tongue twister. And so you may be confused or maybe not like, well, what, what does all this mean? What is he getting at and talking about uh, this, this glorifying? And, and, and let me just kind of try to bring some clarity to what the Bible or the way that the Bible uses this term to glorify, right? And, and, and it really it maybe is helpful for us to think in terms of direction, of an upward sense of it and a downward sense of it, of we who are on earth, God who is in heaven. And this glorifying, there's the one sense where the upward sense where we give God glory, Right? where we glorify him by ascribing to him the glory due his name, by, uh, by ascribing to God through our worship, through our walk, through our work, through our witness, that he is worth everything. And where we give weight to his commands, where we give weight to his ways in such a way that it leads us forward. So what we do every, every Sunday is we talk about we're going vertical, right? We are glorifying God in our worship, through our singing. And we, we do that in our life as we walk with him and we uh, choose to obey his commands. We're saying, you know what? God, your ways are more important than my ways or the world's ways or anything else. We do so in our work, in our service. Uh, we're, we're not just doing it begrudgingly. We're not serving kids or uh, showing hospitality or making coffee or things uh, because uh, we want the glory for it or we want the recognition because we know that Jesus is worth all of our best activity, all of our best uh, effort. And, and he's glorified in our witness as we make much of Jesus recounting his deeds. And so that's in one sense. I think we get that. But what is this meaning now in the other sense of God glorifying? Well, that's the downward sense of God glorifying himself in such a way that his power or activity is made known. D.A. Carson brilliant scholar, written so much on our New Testament, a retired professor at uh, Trinity uh, Evangelical Divinity School up in, in Chicago, a Canadian man with an awesome accent. But he uh, defines it this way. He says that it is the revelation of God's splendid activity. I like that, right? It, it, that, that God glorifying himself here is the revealing of his splendid activity. To simplify that, you're like, okay, well, what does that mean? It is God at work amongst us where change is happening, where his activity is obvious amongst us. In the Old Testament, like think about in Exodus, right, where God was present, his manifest presence, different than his omnipresence and the fact that he is everywhere, but in his presence where he is splendidly at work. How did that show up? In Exodus, in the, in the tabernacle, right? It showed up in a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They knew that he was there and present in their midst, where God is at work, change, transformation is happening. Same is true even now as God is at work in and through and out from us by his Holy Spirit. Transformation happens as your mind explodes with thoughts of the Lord and of his holiness and his activity. As your heart overflows with affection for Christ and what he has done. As your service and activity for the Lord is just energized with zeal. It is because God is at work. By his Holy Spirit in your life, he is splendidly active in and through all that. That's why we have our pillars, 
right? Our pillars, uh, why we devote ourselves to unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration, unceasing prayer, and unafraid witness. They don't just make cute slides on the screen before and after service, nor a, you know, a nice wall art out in the welcome area. But we devote ourselves to these things. Why? Because we know that God is splendidly at work revealing himself as we open his word, as we sing to him about him, as we approach him in prayer and preach the gospel to ourselves. He is at work. Now, all of that hopefully has brought some clarity of an upward and a downward dimension, and that's what Jesus is speaking of here. He's saying, I am about to be glorified. God's, the revelation of God's splendid activity is about to be on display as I head to the cross. And God is going to be glorified as well and magnified as we've just sung, as we acknowledge that, wow, this was God's plan in his orchestrating and sending the son to die and Jesus in obeying the father to the point of death that is about to happen as he says he will glorify him at once. All of this is going to make much of Jesus Christ, much of the father and so maybe you read it and you're, you know, like as astounded as you're reading this and thinking about it and confused as the disciples were in the moment. Remember what's just happened here. They're sitting around at dinner. Jesus has just washed their feet, overturning all the social customs of the day. Then there's just Judas has been called out and then sent out. And they're still kind of reeling about like this betrayal thing. And now Jesus is talking about being glorified and going. And they're like, all right. Like this, this is a dinner unlike any that I think we have ever had and probably they have ever had. They're astounded. And that's why in verse 33 then, as Jesus is teaching them these things, he refers to them as little children. Did you catch that here? Now, this isn't like a, you know, a patronizing like Jesus just patting them on their head, you know, like a little child. Oh, little children, you know, someday you will get this. But there's an affection in this, in this word. There's, there's an affection in the way that Jesus is loving his disciples like a father would with his kids or a teacher with her students as they're teaching these lessons that is stretching their imagination. And so he loves them even as he is uh, uh, dropping these massive truths about his death and departure and what they will accomplish in them. So it's like he, he, he tells them, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave. You're going to seek me. Look at thir- verse 33. It says, uh, you're going to seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. And even this is, like, confusing to them. And, and, and so he's, like, he, he's telling them the same ways. This isn't new information. Same way that the command to love one another is not new. They have been walking with him, even as he has on multiple occasions laid out the same thing. He's told them, almost verbatim, the same thing amongst the the Jews. Remember back in chapter 7? I know it's been months now. In chapter 8, when Jesus was at the feast of the booze, and they were going through all those rituals and those traditions, remembering and commemorating their time back in uh, when they wandered through the wilderness, and they had those traditions of water and light, Jesus confronts the, the Jews. And so the usage of Jews here is not like everybody, but particularly his adversaries, the Pharisees. You remember this? Let's go back. I want you to see this. John chapter 7. Turn back over there. It's a couple pages back in your Bible. 
I want you to see these two usages here so you can see here. And then also, as, as we read these two passages, there's going to be one in seven and one in chapter eight, I want you to note the key differences of what he tells them. And then also, when we come back to chapter 13, what's the difference in how he speaks to the Jewish people and then to his disciples? John 7, verse 32. 32 through 36. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees, they sent officers to arrest him. And Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Ah, you see it? You see the repetition there? That's what he's saying. He, he cannot come. Verse 35. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? And so they don't understand what he's talking about, his departure, his death. They think, oh man, he's going to leave Jerusalem, he's going to leave Israel, and he's going to go to the Jewish people scattered across the Greco-Roman Empire, and he's going to perpetuate his teachings amongst them. They just, they're, they're confused. They're trying to arrest him, and they don't understand it. Well, then you go to... Uh, the last day of the feast, and we go over to chapter 8 now, verse 21, it comes back to the same thing. They've tried to arrest him all this time. Now Jesus tells them that he is the light of the world. Verse 21, he issues the same teaching, but with an indictment. He said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself, since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? And he said to them, you are from below, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Now notice, they're just equally confused, he's saying the same thing, and now they're like, well, he's not going there, is he, is he going to commit suicide? They just don't even understand, and yet in it. It is Jesus offering this invitation to, to embrace him. That right now, you can't come with me. Why? Because you're going to die in your sin and be separate from me forever unless, unless you believe that God, that Jesus is God, the rescuer, the, the savior of the world, the one who delivered us from our sin, the one, the same God who delivered Israel out of captivity in Egypt, the one who revealed himself in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, that same God who delivered them from their slavery to Egypt is now the same God who is appearing to them in the flesh saying, I am is among you. I am is here. I am here to rescue you now out of your slavery to sin and set you free to walk in the promised land of following Jesus. And so he tells them this. He warns them this. Now he comes back. He's in the upper room repeating it to his disciples. But what's the key difference? To the Jewish people, he warns them of their separation from God. And now, as he would tell Peter, where I'm going, you can't come with me now, but after a while, you will. They had already trusted in Christ. They were already in him. They had already repented of their sin and believed that Jesus is God. And so this is glorious stuff. Not, like, his death, then, 
make the connection. His death would actually be the means by which they would believe and then the empowerment to take the gospel, to take this love of God for his children to other people. See, the only way we can love one another is by trusting in Christ and then walking in his power, this power that enables us to do the impossible. It's in a sense that Jesus is here telling them, I am about to die so that you can love the way that I do. I'm about to head to the cross. God, as Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so Jesus is saying that I'm about to make possible what is impossible apart from me. Namely, that you would believe in Jesus and that you would be now empowered to live out this kind of love. And redemption, let me just uh, say uh, from this, apart from Christ, any attempt to love and to obey this command here, to expect a life of sacrificial love, any attempt to do so apart from Christ is powerless. It just becomes burdensome for us where we're just doing all the right things without any of the divine significance, without any of the divine power. It will just be self-righteous where we're doing all the right things with all the wrong motives, trying to earn God's love, trying to earn our salvation. Or it will just be self-rewarding where we're doing all the right things just so we are repaid just so others will show us love or give us something. But Jesus came and died so that that does not have to be our reality. But now that we have received this love, we can give it away all to the praise of his glory and not our own. And so Jesus shows us how this would be made possible, but then also just tells us very clearly, repeating of who to start with. See, who, who are we to love sacrificially? Well, write this down. We're to love the people of the church. We should expect to live a life of sacrificial love among the people of the church. He says, a new commandment I give you to love one another. Why does that narrowly here in focus? Well, this phrase in our New Testament, one another, is the biblical phrase for Christians, for the family of faith, the gathered a body of God's believers committed to one another in the church. One another is, uh, is us, the people of redemption. And we've seen this all, you know, we see this, this idea throughout our New Testament here to love one another and forgive one another and to uh, serve one another and to pray for one another, to encourage one another in the 40 uh, plus instances that go. But here, this loving one another is a love for Christians. And as I've said in, in the past here, love is the central activity of this uncommon community. It is the central activity. Love is the central activity of our uncommon community, the hub around which everything else revolves. Take away love and all the spokes and the tire, they're just useless pieces on the floor. But at the center, bringing it all together, now we're living to the glory of God. And he says it's a new commandment. It's not optional. It's a commandment. We'll come back to the idea of new in a moment. But it is a commandment for us. And since it's not optional, then as we should always seek to do, this hopefully isn't new to you, we must rightly define it. What is this kind of love that we are called to? This agape, unconditional love. Well, you've heard me define it just very simply like this. It's you before me. 
The biblical concept of love is the mindset, the heart attitude, the action of where we just simply say, it's you before me. Your desires before mine. Your preferences before mine. I want to know and I want to help. I want to know you. It's joyful, willing sacrifice for another person. Joyful, willing sacrifice for one another. You before me. It's not, I love what you do for me. I love you because you do this, or I love you because you make me feel this way. No, love is not a commodity to just be consumed nor traded. But it is something that we dispense without condition. Why? Because God loves me, and God loves you, therefore I love you. And even as we talk about it in such a way, I think you can see how distinct, how different this is from the common definitions of love that exist in our day. For around us, if you were to ask uh, uh, the definition of how the unbeliever, others in our world would define love in all of its uses and all of its context here, we could probably boil it down to two things. Love being synonymous with affirmation and acceptance. Affirm everything I think, say, and do. Accept me for who I am, even if you don't like it, even if it runs counter to what is true, good, or right. And these are antithetical to biblical love. For Jesus, as we're called to love just as Jesus, Jesus doesn't just affirm or accept our sinfulness. He loves us despite it. And he loved us to the point of dying for it so that it would no longer be true of us. That's what he's saying here. That's, and that's really where the new comes in. He says, I command, a new command I gave that you love one another. How? Just as I have loved you. In this church, this is where we see the new. This is where we see the new. For as we, you know, if we know the great commandments, what was the old standard of love? Love your neighbor as yourself. Right. So the two great commandments, so love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. You are the standard. And it's not wrong. It's not it. But like Jesus just classically does, he ups the ante. He raises the standard. The new standard in Christ's likeness is now to love like Jesus loves. And how does he love? Well, as we've seen all throughout the, uh, all, all, just in the context, the immediate context of this chapter, and then what's coming in just a few chapters here is he loves sacrificially to the point where he takes the lowest place where he washes feet in selfless uh, service, right? Not looking for recognition, not looking just for, you know, to snap a good photo while Jesus is down washing feet like, hey, it's Judas here, you know, to post on his socials for us. no. He takes the lowest place, humbling himself. How else? He shows us how to sacrificially love because he treated Judas, his betrayer, with kindness. Judas is reclining next to him, and it's so profound. As we explored last week, Jesus knows. He knows what's going to happen, and he repeatedly reaches out to Judas in love. Over and over, he is reaching out to him but he also loves to the point of death. Most profound expression of sacrificial love. And this is where our love starts, church. Amongst the people of God, our small group, the people around you, and then from here it radiates out from us, as we'll see in a moment. 
But as we grow in this, as we want to follow this command to love like Jesus does, if we want to, uh, to love with a heart that is true and genuine before God, then I, I, think, I know I just brought these up a few weeks ago, but they bear repeating for us is just first asking these questions, these heart-diagnosing questions on the screen uh, for us. You can take a picture. You can try to write them down if you're a speed uh, writer here or pull out your notes from a few weeks ago. But it just starts by asking, okay, if I'm going to follow this command, if I want to love sacrificially, do I genuinely want to know this person? As we're trying to get to the bottom of this, okay, can I love? How can I love? Well, do I want to know this person? Can I see beyond the obvious differences that exist to really understand them, their heart? Will I put their interests ahead of mine? Do I desire their spiritual growth? their growth in godliness, their growth as a man or a woman, and then am I willing to do whatever I can to help if I'm asked? And as we ask these kind of questions, that exposes here the heart of love, of loving like Jesus, because we know to him, yeah, he wants to know us. He can see beyond the obvious differences. And, 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 And then we put these things into action through good words or good works, through encouragement, through acts of, of service. And I get it. It's hard especially when we're feeling the squeeze, especially when we feel like the capacity in our life is maxed out. We have no more margin to love anyone else, to bring anyone else into our life. Or maybe it's just in the moments where you're asking these questions or you're realizing these things, you're seeing it in the scripture and you're just convicted that maybe your love is disingenuous. How do we press on? You press on first by just praying, praying that verse, 1 Thessalonians 3.12. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. And as you ask these questions, you pray and ask God who gives the power because of his death to make mature and multiply your love for one another for that person in this specific situation with your kids, with your spouse, with your parents, with coworker, whoever it might be. God, do this work. Make me increase and abound in love for this brother, for this sister. And then we put it into action. And as we do, we know that like our love isn't just confined to these walls around us or the people that are in here right now, but rather as we love one another, as we uh, seek to live this out, then it's, it, it becomes like this magnetic pull to the people around us. Right? Like one of those big Looney Tunes uh, magnets. Remember that? Like Bugs Bunny, that big red like giant... Right? See, as we love one another, what Jesus is teaching in verse 35, then our sacrificial love is a witness to the world. How do we love sacrificially? Well, we expect to love sacrificially as a witness to the world, to the people around us. And I love this here, like verse 30, he's like, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Paul picked up on that in 1 Thessalonians 4, if you remember, right? So that you will walk amongst outsiders properly. And, and I love, see, as we follow this, as we live this new commandment, this distinct love, it really has a threefold purpose. God is exalted, right? Or God is glorified. The believers around you are edified. They're built up and strengthened. And the lost are evangelized. 
They see Christ. They will know that you are my disciples if you have this kind of love that is distinct from what they will find anywhere else on any team, in any community, in any group, everywhere else. It's broken. We live in a broken world searching for love in all the wrong places, don't we? Looking for love in, in people, finding our identity in relationships, finding, uh, uh, try, looking for love and identity in our sexuality and these things that are broken, sin, and never were meant to be our ultimate fulfillment but in Christ. And so as we love one another, we invite those outsiders. We invite the brokenness into this unique experience of the sacrificial love. And this becomes, and Kent Hughes, a great pastor, this Christ-like sacrificial love, he says, quote, becomes a convincing argument for the gospel. It's it's the magnetic pull here. See, there there are some cultural attitudes that are antithetical to this kind of love. There are cultural attitudes that are prevalent in our world now. Suspicion, skepticism, outrage, and fear that are antithetical to this kind of love. We live in a world that's, that's just steeped in and gripped by suspicion, assuming the worst about everybody's motives. Assuming that everybody else is out to get us. And yet, 1 Corinthians 13, that great chapter on defining this kind of biblical love, 1 Corinthians 13 shows us a different way. Whereas these attitudes of suspicion grip us, now biblical love between believers believes the best. It says it believes all things. In in skepticism, like just assuming that we're the smartest people in the world, the smartest people in the room that were always right and skeptical about anything else, and yet a biblical love between believers, as 1 Corinthians 13 says, no, it rejoices in the truth. Where it isn't about me being right and you being wrong or vice versa here. No, it's about what is true and what God says is good and true and right. We live in a world that's gripped by outrage. Every article and many conversations are just people tantruming because they can't do what they want. Hating restraint, hating being told no, hating being told, you know, you just can't air all your thoughts and all your passions and do whatever you want. No, 1 Corinthians 13 shows us a different way, a biblical love that doesn't insist on its own way. But also, we live in a world that's gripped by fear. Fear that is antithetical to this sacrificial love that is distrusting of everyone and panicking about all the what-ifs that could potentially happen in life and in relationships. And yet, this biblical love, as we see in 1 Corinthians 13, is a love that hopes all things. That is hopeful. And not just naive, but hopes and believes in in the power of God. See... It is sin that drives us to be self-promoting, self-preserving, and self-protecting. But biblical love is self-sacrificing. It is you before me, and that is the magnetic pull out of the brokenness of, that, of, of those the cultural attitudes into this life of love. And so how do we do it? 
Well, the options are endless, but maybe you can start here. Just like it happens. How do you invite others? How do people see? Well, it's inviting them into your life just uh, um, through just consistent acts of service, of showing up in the moments. Yes, in moments of crisis, when you see your neighbor or unbelievers you know uh, are walking through a hard season in life, it's showing up there. But it's also just showing up as they move, as they're putting up, you know, Halloween decorations, as they are, you know, have moments of need, as they're raking the leaves in, in their yard. It's just showing up through consistent acts of service, of saying, you before me. It's meeting people on their terms, hanging out in your front yard instead of just the hiding out in our backyards. It's uh, meeting them on a safe place. It's, in, yes, inviting them into uh, your home for the game. You know, when the Packers are playing, you know, or whatever other team that exists out there you root for. But it's inviting them over. If you're watching it and you're having some friends over from church, it's inviting others so they can watch and observe. How do you interact? How do you serve? How do you show hospitality as you have them over? Let them see the difference in how we speak and how we serve and how we love and put others before us. But understand this, even as we do, even as we come to expect a life of sacrificial love, expect it to have some bumps along the way. So expect there to be this loving sacrifice that there your life will have some bumps along the way. And maybe as you're reading this, like 36 through 38 seem like a disconnected portion of this passage. And, you know, I can almost imagine this, this, you know, things are coming, like the conversation going something like, uh, you know, like this, like Jesus just taught on love, and now Peter's like, yeah, yeah, we've heard this love one another stuff before. You know, you just preached a sermon on it a couple weeks ago, uh, Jesus. We've, you know, seen it. But can we come back to this business of you're leaving us and we can't go? Well, where are you going, right? Where, where are you going? To which Jesus just like patiently repeats, I'm where I'm going, you can't follow me, but you will, he adds this, but you will follow me afterward, okay? You can't come now, but you will follow me, you will die, you will be with me. And Peter's just like, okay, but Lord, like, what do you mean? Where I'm going, you can't come. What 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 do you mean by this? We've traveled with you every step of the way for the last three years of your life. We have been there. What do you mean? I will lay down my life for you, right? More, most literally, like if we were to just kind of take this out here, he says, it's, it's, I, I, it will be my life on behalf of your life. You can appreciate Peter's zeal in this, can't you? He's protective of Jesus. He's been with him along the way. He loves him. This is a brother. This is a friend here. But no, this like Jesus loves Peter enough to say the hard things. He's done it already in chapter 13, right? But, but don't miss this. It was Jesus' job alone to die as a substitute. It was Jesus' job alone to die on behalf of those. It wasn't Peter's job. It is not our job to die on behalf of others for their sin. And Jesus isn't just like throwing Peter's sin in his face. Don't see it like that. You know, he, he's not petulant like, you know, I and we can be here. He's not just like throwing it in his face. Well, I know this about you. No, Peter, Jesus is sobering Peter to the reality of Jesus' substitutionary death for his sin. I know what you're going to do, and I love you enough that I'm going to die in your place anyways. You know, and 
So you just kind of zoom out and read John 13. I think maybe it's easy for us, right, to dismiss seeing ourselves like Judas. I think we would never betray Jesus like that to the point of death. I think we delude ourselves into thinking that, like, we, we would never do that. But if we're honest, how many of us can relate to Peter? Denying him in conversations. And yet I would submit to you that neither act is any less offensive to God. They're no less treasonous. No, Peter's sin is no less deserving of death. And Jesus knows Peter's denial in the same way that he knew Judas' betrayal. And he lovingly calls him out and reminds him that, no, no, Jesus alone will heroically die on behalf of others. And see, when it comes to loving others, I think we too boast the thing like, I would take a bullet for my wife, but I won't willingly sacrifice a few minutes from watching the football game to wash a few dishes. Hashtag guilty. We heroically envision acts of self-sacrifice but scoff at or begrudge the little opportunities that God gives us every day to deny ourselves in love for others. For our kids, for our parents, our spouse, our neighbors, co-workers, whoever it might be. And thankfully, during these bumps in following Christ, during these moments of denial, during these moments of missed opportunities, it's these moments that are the moments for which Christ also died. He knew they would happen, and it did not stop him from going to the place of the cross. So that we, we don't need to live our life under this like enormous guilt for all the things that we aren't doing, for the missed opportunities with the gospel, but rather as they are brought to our attention by Christ or by others here, that we're humble enough to just admit our weaknesses, embrace God's grace in our failures, and actually see his power at work through our limitations and not our heroic acts. That it is in these moments, this, this is true, genuine, authentic, sacrificial love. Christ as the hero and we as his followers. Praise God that he died on our behalf, that we can love like this, through the imperfections, through the limitations, through the pain, through the embarrassing moments like Peter will walk through. But rather, he calls us to love, to love one another, a love that is empowered by his death, that is lived out amongst those whom Christ died as a witness to those who are dying as we learn ourselves to die to ourselves. Let's pray and ask God's help in that. God in heaven, uh, this text as you're teaching here just uh, uh, is on our heart as we're sorting things out. We have to start by just telling you thank you. Thank you, Jesus, that you died on our behalf, that you were glorified so that we could love, that you loved us enough 
to go to the cross. You love us enough to call us out of our sin. You love us enough to carry us along in these moments. Jesus, you're the real hero, and so we tell you thank you this morning. We also ask just for your help. Lord, we see the standard. We can see the opportunities, as well as the missed opportunities. We just ask for your help, help for this afternoon, help for this week, help to see beyond ourselves, to get out of our own uh, way and to see the ways that you have called us to put others before ourselves. And so we, we confess, God, we ask for your forgiveness for the moments, God, that we have missed and ask for your help. God, thank you that your mercy is new to us today. It's a new day. Tomorrow will be a new day. And you will lend your aid by your spirit. And so we thank you for that. But God, use us. Use, uh, we, we want our life to count. We want to emulate this love. And so help us, Lord. But we close now just with another expression of praise, of adoration, of ascribing to you the glory due your name, Jesus, for your great love that you poured out for us. We pray these things now in Christ's name. All redemption said, Amen.